2: At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to the weirdest thing I learned this week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman.
1: I'm Jess Bodie, And I'm Charlie McDonald.
2: Charlie, welcome to the show. Yay!
3: <laughs>
2: welcome,
1: welcome.
3: That intro really makes me feel like I'm on the squad. That, that was that was so fun.
2: <laughs> you are on
3: the
1: squad. Come on. Absolutely.
2: Um Charlie, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, listeners. I probably can't talk about like all the stuff I know Charlie for without like really dating myself and um <laughs> hearkening back to just like a very different uh time in in my life and my my fandom participation but charlie why don't you tell me about all the cool stuff you're doing now
3: (laughs) i love the if the idea that you like watching me like early youtube era like dates you like what does that say about how old i am (laughs) (laughs) we are contemporaries
2: (laughs) and unfortunately Mm -hmm. on the internet that makes us ancient so yes yeah
3: (laughs) um yeah, I mean, uh, I have been doing internet stuff for a very long time, did uh, YouTube for a, a very long time, over 12 years, uh, took a break, came back more recently. These days, I do a lot of Twitch streams and things like that. Uh, yeah, making YouTube videos too and do some some screenwriting stuff as well. Uh, but I feel like, yeah, most people these days will probably still know me from the uh, the ancient YouTube before times <laughs> when I was known as Charlie and So Cool. Um, that is me.
2: Amazing. Well, we're super psyched to have you on, uh, sharing some some weird stuff. And uh, Jess, happy as always to drag you over to this side of the soundboard. Oh yeah. Uh, I'm back, baby. (laughs) You never left, (laughs) literally. (laughs) True, true. I'm always lurking. Uh, So let's get into it. On The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story that we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, streaming, etc., and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then, once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Except not really. I decided we don't pick winners anymore, and it's fine. <laughs> we <laughs> yes, all, we win. all win. Uh Jess, what's your tease?
1: My tease is I'm gonna talk about quicksand. Why why was it so popular in movies? Where is it gone? <laughs> and is it real? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Great question. Where has it gone? I can't I can't wait until I
3: know, more. it's weird. Uh Charlie, what's your tease? Ooh, okay. My tease is I'm going to talk about um, British people and tea and the funny impact that it has on the uh, UK electrical system.
2: Fascinating. Yo. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. Um, my tease is that uh, jellyfish can learn from their mistakes even though they have no brains, which begs the question, what is my excuse? So... <laughs> Um, (laughs) where shall we begin um shall i dive in with jellyfish perhaps please wonderful please um while i was researching this fact i kept thinking of this quote and i thought it was from um lebanese nicket's book of weird macabre little quotes but then it turned out to actually be from welcome to night Vale, uh which Mm. I, i think is a there's a a fair intersection of topic there but uh anyway it is there is a thin semantic line separating weird and beautiful and that line is covered in jellyfish um love that very true so just set the mood there um but before we can talk about how jellyfish learn we have to talk about the fact that they have no brains absolutely none head empty not even a head but if they had one it would be (laughs) empty um And if you're thinking of like the human brain as the archetype of the brain as a concept, um, you're probably not surprised to hear that jellyfish have brains. It would look pretty freaky if they did. And that's something that I'm thinking about now. Um, That is
3: something I very much like want to see a picture of now as well. That sounds like a freaky image I, I want to see for sure.
2: Yeah, that would be, a, be very alien. <laughs> yeah, it feels like a great like B horror movie uh, sort of alien creature would be just like a jellyfish with a, a brain wobbling around
1: in there. Um, Makes me think of Metroid. Uh, yes.
3: Yeah, 100%.
1: It's like that's like what it would look like yeah. if it was a jellyfish with a brain. Yeah. Um, but in
2: fact, a brain is really just a cluster of nerve cells that control the body they're in. Um, And exactly what that cluster looks like can vary a lot, especially among invertebrates, most of which have brains, um, but like very small, simple ones. Um, They're often very simple structures that are just called ganglia. uh, But most animals have some kind of centralized nerve structure, a.k.a. brain. Um, Even if it's like, you know, uh, a leech, which like has like one cluster of nerves in their front and then another one in their butts and that's those are brains what? you know but um, brain yeah yeah so like when somebody talks about like a tentacle or a tail having a brain in it that's what they mean as a kid i always was like you telling me you telling me they got they got a brain just stuck on that tail and but what what that refers to is you know a a cluster of nerve cells such that it can be a command center of stuff um and so, yeah, that can look all different ways. It can be in multiple parts of the body. It does not have to be in the noggin. Um, some animals don't have noggin. Some animals are just tubes. But anyway, <laughs> um, jellyfish are some of the only animals that lack this structure entirely. Um, others include sea cucumbers, sea urchins, coral, and, you know, like other marine creatures that are known for like their deep intellectual pursuits. Uh, basically... These are very simple, chill guys, and it's maybe not so shocking that um, they have not even the simplest version of what we could call a brain. Jellyfish actually have two nervous systems uh, instead of a central nervous system. Um, So they have a large sort of like net of nerves that controls their swimming, and then they have a smaller nerve net that takes care of feeding, feeding, um, a spasm response, which is basically like curling up into a ball, if if it happens, um, and literally everything else a jellyfish might be want to do that smaller nerve net handles, and that's super interesting. Not just because like wow, animals in all of their magnificent forms, some of them don't even have nerves that cluster together the way they're supposed to, but also because jellyfish and their close relatives are some of the oldest sort of animal lineages. They date back 500 million years. So, a lot of the best studies we have on like the evolutionary family tree suggest that jellyfish and other, you know, squishy brainless <laughs> things from the sea um may represent kind of like one of the oldest forks coming off of the ancient ancestor from which all multicellular things uh, came so we love looking at them because um, other than being kind of freaky and beautiful and weird uh, also there's this idea that maybe they hint at like what the like you know er, nerve cell situation was Mm. Um, obviously things change a lot in 500 million years it's not like oh what's going on in the jellyfish must be Uh, just like what our common ancestor had, but it's a good sort of case study in like working backwards (laughs) and then trying to (laughs) figure that out. And yeah, I saw one researcher, Rebecca Helm, who works at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, um, which is a a place where most of the exciting marine stuff happens. Uh, She said that jellies are like the original computer networks with little servers all along the margin of their body that they use cooperatively which I thought was a really nice way of explaining it. So they have this, yeah, they have this net of cooperative nerve bundles that all talk to each other and they have like some pockets of centralized nerves, but there's no master controller. So that's a really good thing if, say, a sea turtle comes along and like bites off part of the bell, (laughs) which is like, you know, the body of the jellyfish, um, because... The, the, there's no way for um, a predator to take a, a chunk out of uh, the brain because there's no brain; right. it's all just nerve slurry <laughs> so, and goo. Um, yeah, yeah. You can really you can get a real chunk taken off of the main part of you, and um, you've just lost a few of your servers, and the other ones can <laughs> pick up the slack. But we already know that despite this relatively bizarre nervous system situation. Some jellies have managed really complex behavior, relatively speaking, given like their total brainlessness. So box jellies, for example, are known to have a pretty complicated courtship ritual. They, uh, the females have to catch the males in their tentacles, and then eat sperm packets that the males spit up. No. So there's coordination. There's coordination. <laughs> there's forethought. I mean, maybe forethought's too strong of a word. Mm-hmm. But, like, plans have to be executed, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and some studies even suggest that jellyfish require sleep, which is kind of a an open philosophical question. We've talked about the mysteries of sleep on weirdest Thing before. Nobody really knows what it's for. But our best guess is that it's like a cleaning or rebooting mechanism for the brain, um, but when researchers are studying sleep, because it's so poorly understood, it's one of those things where it's like one of the questions for them to ask is like, what is the the lowest common denominator of sleep? Like, what what is the core of like what we mean when we say something is sleeping, mm-hmm. and uh, how many aspects of it that we think are crucial to sleep like can be stripped away and it's still like the same fundamental mechanism happening um you need a pillow and you need a a duvet and if if the
3: jellyfish don't have those and they're not sleeping right
2: (laughs) yeah exactly exactly (laughs) um so the researchers knew that the jellyfish had some like circadian rhythm patterns and they were really interested in seeing like can we demonstrate that they are snoozing in a way that we can comprehend. And a study said, we think yes, and some other people were like, we think no, but it's ongoing. Um, Point being, like jellyfish, they've got a lot going on in there, (laughs) which is surprising. And um, in this new study, researchers showed that the Caribbean box jellyfish can actually learn from experience with no brain required. So when we say learning, (laughs) there's basically two types of learning that, um, become really important when you're talking about like animal cognition studies, because, um, you can show that an animal can do one kind of learning and not necessarily show that they can do the other. Um, so non-associative learning is stuff like habituation. So it's like, if you poke an animal a few times, it'll eventually stop like shying away because it's like, I've learned that you poking me is not going to lead to you hurting me. And associative learning um, is much more complicated because that means an animal has to like connect different cues in its environment. Pavlov's dog is a classic example of that because the dog connects bell to feeding um, and starts salivating at the sound of the bell. So, yeah, non-associative learning is just either responding to something more or less. Uh, If you're responding to it more, it's called sensitization. You know, in humans, if you like hear the same sound over and over, you might tune it out Uh, or you might be like, I can't ignore that sound (laughs) because it is everywhere and it's happening all the time. Um, But that's, you know, not really what we talk about when we say humans have learned something. And that's important because scientists have known for a while that animals um, in the phylum that includes jellyfish and sea anemones and corals, anemones <laughs> always gets me. <laughs> um, they can do things like sensitization and habituation. They can respond to stimulus. Um, so that it's not that it's no big deal. It's still like it, you know, it shows that there's like uh, somebody's home in there uh, as it were, but it's not what we would call, learning, or at least, you know, it's it's a much more rudimentary kind of learning. And um, not many experiments have tried to demonstrate associative learning um, in really simple animals. And some researchers say a lot of that is like um, due to sort of bias in in, you know, in that scientists assume that these animals aren't going to be capable of it. And then also just sort of the difficulty of creating an experimental protocol. Um, I saw multiple articles where researchers used the uh, the comparison that like you you can't judge a fish based on its ability to climb a tree, right which is also also something that my friend who's really into unschooling says a lot. so yeah <laughs> but um, it's true for people and for animals. So like researchers uh, in one study, I want to say this was on sponges, but it was definitely on one of one of those simple, Um, ocean critters and they were trying to get it to learn stuff um, basically using like electrical stimuli like giving them a little shock to try to teach them to avoid the shock um, and like adding some additional information in there so that it would be more complex than just the more fundamental learning I talked about earlier but they were like shocks aren't something they encounter naturally in the ocean so it's like maybe not fair (laughs) to judge their ability to learn based on their ability to uh, learn from a shock. So all that is to say, it's really hard. And luckily, these researchers decided they were going to try to make it happen with the Caribbean box jellyfish, which is the size of a fingernail, adorable. Wait, that's Um, how big a
1: box jellyfish is? There are
2: different kinds of box jellyfish. (laughs) You're thinking of, yeah. I was like, I thought they were large and in charge,
1: but is that the Australian one I'm thinking of?
2: (laughs) Yeah. They're definitely large and in charge box okay. jellyfish, species, but this is a tiny one. And they are one. known for being very poisonous, which I think this box jellyfish also has some potency. Sure, but it's so tiny. Okay, thing, yeah, they're little think it's babies. Less of a problem, yeah, yeah. Um, but they do have twenty-four eyes. What?
3: <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs>
2: no way. Again, uh, not. They don't look like our eyes, which again would be so that would freaky. Be so I would love scary, to see dude. it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they have visual sensors um, that are arranged in clusters around their body and that helps them perceive the world and they have—they uh, seem to perceive the world with a, a really impressive amount of visual detail because they live in these underwater mangrove roots in uh, the Caribbean Sea cool. and um, the central Indo-Pacific region and it's very murky and mm. they have to like dart around these roots and like you know, hunt and not be hunted within these murky roots. And so researchers are like, okay, so clearly with these 24 eyes, they are accomplishing some pretty impressive um, sensory and cognitive stuff. So let's see if we can show that they learn from visual stimulus because their hypothesis was basically, we don't think it would be feasible for them to navigate these waters unless they like learned how to respond to different visual stimuli that they, you know, encounter in these these murky mangroves. And so they designed an experiment um, that also they again, they were trying to make this like using skills that would make sense for this jellyfish. To have and to use for learning. So they know that these jellyfish have an instinct to protect their bell because it's like the the bulk of them. And they also know that they navigate these really cloudy, murky waters. Um, So they put them in tanks that they painted with three different levels of contrast. Some had these like very high contrast black and white vertical stripes, Um, which they meant to represent like tree roots in the distance. Um, There was a medium contrast, which was gray and white stripes. And so that they wanted it to be like an optical illusion of tree roots that were like actually very far away or like not actually tree roots. And then they had a solid gray, just no contrast, full Merc. And... In the tank with the black and white stripes, no problem. They never bumped into the walls. They didn't need to learn anything. They could see that there were some tree roots there, um, so to speak. Um, In the gray tank, they bumped into the walls willy-nilly, and they learned nothing. (laughs) They were just like, what the heck is up with this wall that I keep hitting into? Um, But in the tank with the gray and white stripes, um, they gradually learned to associate the decor with a risk of collisions. They started out bumping into the tank walls. Um, and these trials were like seven and a half minutes long. Um, and by the end of the trial, they were successfully not bumping into the wall. Um, and <laughs> they said they were like really impressed that it only took three to five bumps for the jellyfish <laughs> to be like, okay, yeah, no, it's staying away from that is those. Impressive yeah yeah well, so i'm and, now just like
3: imagining a bunch of researchers just like around these tanks just yeah like,
2: like, <laughs> yeah you go jellyfish <laughs> right right <laughs> yeah absolutely you know it um so the researchers then took this a step further um they wanted to look closer at the, those centers of vision um that make up 24 eyes these are uh known as uh, ropalia and there are four of them and each one contains visual neurons, and six eyes, uh, air quotes. Uh, So, you know, that's how you get your 24 eyes. Um, And so basically, they took some Ropalia from the jellyfish and put them in a petri dish. And they gave the cells um, a little electrical pulse, um, which was supposed to be a stand-in for um, the jellyfish bumping into uh, a mangrove root. Um, And while they did this, they were exposing them to images of a moving gray bar mm. <laughs> to, like, represent that you're approaching this mangrove root, and then, like, zap, you have hit it. Right. Um, hmm. Which is, we're, we're all just electrical meat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and,
0: and,
2: <laughs> so it, for, when they just did the, like, here approaches a mangrove root, nothing happened. But when they added in the electrical shock... The um, Ropallium started to generate high-frequency electrical signals, um, the kind that would promote obstacle dodging mm. in a jellyfish. Um, so, this was suggesting that this structure, which like serves as like a little miniature like visual brain processing center, um, might also serve as a learning center because you're you're getting this feedback and um, the nerves are just doing it for themselves. Yeah, so obviously there's a lot more work to do to really understand what's going on in a jellyfish non-brain, um, but it's a great reminder that intelligence can be so different from uh, how we experience it and even how we observe it in animals that are similar to us. Um, and the researchers involved in this study are really excited because they think that this implies that individual nerve cells can learn Um, so you know maybe when we're talking about muscle memory we're we're talking about nerves
1: learning yo um, that's interesting
2: yeah and it definitely reminded me of um, that time a couple of years ago when um, some researchers put brain cells in a dish and taught them to play pong oh yeah <laughs> <And they> really... <laughs> I forgot about that so um, maybe even without our brains we could learn from our mistakes and learn how to play pong and. Isn't that thrilling? <laughs> Poetic. For us.
1: Didn't they do something with slime molds once? Like didn't they teach them how to fear or something?
2: I right. so slime molds, I almost looked up stuff about slime molds to add to this yeah. because you're right. It's so it feels so similar. Um slime molds are able to like find their way around obstacles right. and like remember places they don't want to go. That's right. That's right. Like what if I'm you put something of. nasty there, they'll be like we we have sung of this for generations of slime mold and we dare not go to this place. Yeah. That's how I imagine it works
1: totally. Because um, they're so weird. They're like single cells but like one thing, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. They're 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 one very smart cell. Yeah. So yeah. I think um we're uh I'm actually uh I think my next book is gonna be about intelligence. That's right. Um heard it heard it here first yo no you haven't I've been working on it for a That's long time, time. <laughs> I, uh, I personally heard it here first yeah. thank you yeah, yeah. um <laughs> uh, and uh, uh yeah I, I love thinking about just all of the ways that it, brains and nerve cells can be so different from um the way we think of them as working and and like when we talk about animal intelligence when we talk about alien intelligence it's like we really have to go back and and kind of fix so much bias we've baked in about just like what it even means to learn and to think so yeah if uh (laughs) listeners if you want to keep up on um my project about intelligence and whatever it might become you can now follow me on patreon
3: huge hell yeah
2: check me out there you'll find me just by searching my name (laughs) so easy (laughs) that's That's the secret. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Plug done. Nice. All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be
0: back with more facts. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find
2: Okay, we're back. And um, Jess, why don't you draw us in oh. and hold us there?
1: That was nice. Uh, that was, some that quicksand. was great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.
3: And then we can <laughs> fall through to the secret like uh, part of the tomb underneath. Exactly, the treasure yes. yes. right?
1: That's how it works. <laughs> then to that hang has out there. To be... Finish the episode there. <laughs> yes. That has <laughs> to be in some Zelda game or something, isn't it? I feel like it, it must be. Um, but yeah, so speaking of the quicksand being in Zelda... It used to be everywhere. Right. Like it was every 10 year old's worst fear in the 90s. Like, you know, you're just living life, walking around and then bam, you're sucked into quicksand. Right. Like that. (laughs) When I was a kid, I had that fear.
2: It was definitely more of a thing. Yeah. And like, was it Legends of the Hidden Temple that made it more of a thing? I don't know. We'll get there.
1: We'll get there. Um. And yeah, and it's not like, you know, like I grew up in suburban Illinois. Like, it's not like I'm in the wilderness encountering <laughs> mud and quicksand. But um, and, you know, there's all the myths and the classic instructions of like, don't move. The more you move, the faster you'll sink. Um, And f- personally, for me, I feel like I had this fear because of like the Princess Bride in 1987. Like that, you know, I've talked about Fire Swamp on here before and in that fire swamp there is also the quicksand that just like (whistles) sucks you right in um Uh and as i was researching quicksand it's also in 1984's never-ending story um it's in many of the older mario games but not as much today also apparently it was in at least three episodes of the soap opera days of our lives (laughs) (laughs) At least three episodes, Um, which is hilarious to me. And I kind of want to go scope those out because it has to be amazing. Um, And that was also in the 80s. So all of these things that I've listed are mostly from the 80s, early 90s. But apparently quicksand, like peak quicksand time was in the 1960s. So this guy, this journalist named Daniel Angber wrote a really, really great piece about all this quicksand stuff for Slate. Um, and I will link to that on popside.com slash weird. But yeah, so basically he did a lot of research about this. And looking back to the 60s, it's super, super prevalent in movies and media. So it is in Lawrence of Arabia, that 1962 award-winning movie, my, one of my dad's favorites. Cla- I think it's a very dad movie. You yeah, know? classic,
2: classic mm-hmm. dad film.
1: Big time. It's also in this. It's in a lot of movies, but I found this really cool movie I need to go see now from 1964. It's a Japanese sci-fi movie called Woman in the Dunes.
2: Ooh. And yeah,
1: I, I need it. Um, and apparently characters spend, as the name might suggest, a lot of time trapped in a sand pit. Um, but yeah, there are a lot more. And the Slate story actually does have data about this. So peak, like I said, peak quicksand time was in the 60s when nearly 3% of films in the era, which doesn't sound like a whole lot, but that's one in 35 movies showed someone sinking in mud, sand, or some kind of oozing clay. Um, So one in 35, that feels significant. Um, And basically compare that with every decade before um, or since really, like that's when quicksand was at its peak. So before that, it was like, Half a percent of films had anything quicksand. Um, So what's, you know, what's with the explosion? And even after that, it kind of peters off. Like, I think a lot of our experience with quicksand was kind of like that residual from the peak quicksand. Because ever since then, it's been on a slope towards, you know, now, which you barely ever see it anymore.
2: Well, I think it became such a such a like trope and a cliche.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because like and I'll talk about this a little bit later. But like, you know, other things remain like people still use Wilhelm screams true and other gimmicks i don't know but i agree it feels- i was
3: thinking about the wilhelm scream recently do you both know the um the scream that um lego yoda does yeah uh, in the lego <laughs> games i was thinking we need to get rid of the wilhelm scream i think it's tired and it's done and we need to bring that like uh that yoda scream in Please.
1: instead. <laughs> yes i want to
3: start a petition for this or something
1: i know it because there are all those videos Chains. on youtube <laughs> that are like <laughs> change network, that are like an hour of silence interrupted by blank and i've seen yes. the hour of silence interrupted by lego yoda screams <laughs> it's <laughs> iconic it's
3: a good scream look at it
1: that it's great it's great <laughs> we will link to it on pops.com weird right. so yeah it it is kind of a trend and like it does feel dated and something that I think of, like, you know, as we consider this transition from quicksand to no quicksand in movies is um, this this one scene that really feels quicksandy, but isn't to me. And it to me, in my mind, it like acts as this transition out of using quicksand as a tool. And that's the trash compactor scene in Star Wars. Mm. So instead of like being sucked down vertically, they're kind of being crushed horizontally. Um, but it's it has like all the same elements like they're trapped they need to get out you know that sort of thing it's just a lot kind of scrabbling a lot of scrabbling yeah that's a great word <laughs> <laughs> very similar plot device and you know in star wars there's like the sarlacc pit and yoda's swamp and those are kind of quicksandy too but you know the data does show as more time progresses less quicksand shows up in movies tv and media like consider the tv show lost over 100 episodes, no quicksand. <laughs> no quicksand in Lost. So much sand, none of it quick. Correct. Yeah, just wild. Um,
3: that is what would have saved the the ending of Lost if they had all they just needed. fallen into quicksand. <laughs> At the end, everyone have, would have been like, great, you did it. Nailed yeah. it.
1: <laughs> Best show ever. So why? Why does quicksand go away? Uh, you know, like I said earlier, the Wilhelm scream is still around. Like, the time bomb thing is still around, too. Like, the snipping of the wires, you know? Like, gimmicks like that. They're still there.
3: When was the last time I saw that? I'm
1: trying to think. It's in an M&M's commercial. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Highly relevant, then, still. Yes. Clearly. So,
1: yeah, I would, I would argue, yes. Um, but, so the writer of this Slate story does have a theory about why Quicksand was so hot and then so not. Um, he says that it was it was that way because it was so tightly associated with sixties culture and politics. So apparently there was reportedly some kind of quicksand in Vietnam during the war. Um I don't know what kind or if if that was a real report, but um a lot of political and historical writers of the time kind of used quicksand as a metaphor to describe the war as a whole. So there are books and articles titled, quote, The Quicksand War War, or like the making of a quagmire which like at the time quicksand and quagmires were like kind of considered to be the same thing they are very different but yeah at the time you know we didn't have an advanced understanding of such things but you know people like also debated something called the quicksand myth in politics and you know it was basically just like a whole thing in the 60s people were like so into quicksand as as a narrative device even in real life in society and politics and stuff so and i guess like the whole quicksand myth thing is like, you know, if you're not careful, you get sucked in and then you get sucked in more and more and it's hard to escape without sacrificing something. And like, I can see how that would be a useful analogy. So that was one thing. So like, you know, quicksand just super ingrained with both with politics in the 60s uh, and war. But you know what else happened in the 60s? The moon landing. Uh, You know, and I'm sure you're thinking there's no way this quicksand obsession could extend to the moon. And if you were thinking that, you'd be wrong.
3: <laughs> so it, I was thinking that.
1: <laughs> basically, there was a group of scientists led by this one guy, uh, a Cornell astronomer named Thomas Gold and a Na- NASA mathematician named Leonard Roberts. And they were like, they were warning everybody that the surface of the moon might be so torn up. By like different kind of space waves and junk and everything out there that the sands might be really loose and powdery and dangerous. So they actually warned the Senate in 1963 saying that they were worried about the moon lander like sinking into the loose sands on the moon. Like they were literally like there's moon quicksand. Like use caution. That's not a real thing, by the way. But.
2: (laughs) Moon dust is like really nasty for sure sharp so it would be really bad if it also was quicksandy but it would be it's not (laughs) i know
1: i remember i think it was sarah chodosh who did a segment on like being allergic to the moon dust yeah 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 it's nasty it's happened but moon quicksand actually was in a movie (laughs) after they were so like you know after they warned the senate about the moon quicksand they put like hollywood put it in a movie and it is the film 12 to the moon, which is from 1960, and an astronaut gets sucked right down into the lunar quicksand. So basically, we aren't, it isn't really clear whether like we first got obsessed with it in the movies and then everybody kind of started applying it as a metaphor to real life stuff or if like stuff like the war and like real life stuff made us obsessed with quicksand and put it into movies. Um, it seems like kind of a positive feedback loop. You know what I mean? Fueling each other. We may never really know the truth. Um, behind the origin but whatever whatever you know whatever the reason quicksand was hot in the 60s and as 60s culture kind of became less trendy the 70s and 80s took over quicksand supposedly faded away as a metaphor and a hollywood storytelling device so that's probably why it was so hot and then not in theory but here's the question the quicksand that they told stories about in vietnam and the one shown in movies is it real you know, would it act like that?
0: Mm-hmm. Would it really
1: just suck you all the way down above your head? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you struggle, does it suck you down faster? Like, is there truth to that? Well, I'm happy to report that in 2004, the Mythbusters looked, t- they took a look, you know. <laughs> uh so, if they you're into the moon. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, I wish. I wish. <laughs> um, so, Adam and Jamie, you know, if you're unfamiliar, those are the pro- professional debunkers. Um, they took on this idea of killer quicksand. You know, can people really get sucked into this sand and water mixture and, you know, like, like, like it is in the movies? So, they filled this giant container with 20,000 pounds of very, very fine sand and then they turned it into this like slurry by pumping a bunch of water up like through the bottom Um, and Adam actually gets in like sacrificing I'm sure there was safety measures but you know he he gets in (laughs) and he starts to sink but only up to like his chest his waist and chest kind of like where his armpits are and you know at the end they do their classic debrief and Uh, Adam's like, all right, what's our final verdict on the movie style killer quicksand? And Jamie's like, surprised you even have to ask. It's absolutely busted. No such thing. Um, (laughs) This is perfect. Perfect.
2: uh... Thank you. (laughs) I didn't even practice. I feel like I'm right there.
1: (laughs) Um, But yeah, you know, if Mythbusters isn't good enough for you, which come on, it's Mythbusters. Uh, There was a nature study (laughs) published the next year. In 2005, you know, not like some random journal. It's the big boy nature journal, whatever. Um, so basically, there was this physicist named Daniel Bonn, and he collected, they called it wild quicksand, <laughs> which I think is a really funny way to put it. But, you know, quicksand occurring naturally. It's from this salt lake in Iran, um, and they brought it back to his lab in the Netherlands. And basically what he did is he placed um, different kinds of aluminum beads in the quicksand and he he based that on like the density of like the human body basically um so like it was a it, in in his mind it was, a, it was an analogy to how a human might sink um and he basically found the same thing as the mythbusters did is that a person would uh only sink up to their armpits so
2: interesting
1: They basically debunked like movie style quicksand, you know, the kind that like it like think of the Princess Bride where you take one step and then like you're 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 down there. But real life quicksand is typically made up of, you know, this particular mixture of sand and clay and salt water. And this particular thing about it is when you apply force to it, it kind of liquefies. So it goes from this like solid earth to this gooey liquid really, really fast and that that does kind of explain the whole like move more and sink faster myth, um, which which does it you know that that can happen, but it's not like you're going to go all the way down. So it definitely doesn't sound nearly as scary. But wait till you hear this.
2: <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> the plot thickens. So to pull your foot out of quicksand at a rate of one centimeter per second would require the same force needed to lift a medium sized car. Oh. So you're stuck in there. Right, yeah. Uh-huh. Um and if you're stuck up to your armpits, it's also like the the danger, you know, if you're in wild quicksand as they say. Because
2: like chest compression.
1: Definitely part of it. But the other part of it is um hypothermia. Because a lot of like oh, quicksand yeah, is like yeah, in colder yeah, yeah. regions. Um, and depending on the time of year. And then the other scary thing, which actually did happen to somebody, I think, in Alaska, is if you're on a coastline and you're stuck and the tide comes in. I, yeah, it's, it's. Yeah, that's very bleak. sad. Yeah, very bleak. So to cap all of this off, I just have the story of a guy who got stuck and he does survive. <laughs> but, you know, it, it kind of I'll show you the experience of what it's like to get stuck in wild, earthly quicksand. Um, and this guy actually did write about his experience for Outside Magazine. So I'll link to that too um, on slash weird. But basically, this was in Utah back in 2011. It was a 25 year old hiker and he got stuck in quicksand. Um, his name was Rob Tazar and he was hiking the Dirty Devil River in southeastern Utah. And he's with some other students from this National Outdoor Leadership School. So basically, they were hiking, they were hiking, they were kind of along this riverbank that they wanted to. Um, it's kind of like a cliff and then a river and they were trying to like traverse, um, trying to find a path like between them basically. So they found this like receded coastline. He was like, I'll go make sure that it's not like submerged in water to make sure we can walk across it. And about 15 feet from the water, he realized something was up. He went to like turn around 90 degrees to talk to the guy who he was with and he just sunk immediately to his knees. And the other guy he was with, only one of his feet kind of sank in. So he he was barely stuck. Um, and they struggled for like 15 minutes trying to get out. And then they used, um, they had some rope. So they were able to like leverage with some rope and his buddy, his, his friend was able to get free, but his, um his foot came out and the shoe stayed, which is like such a funny <laughs> image. That feels Hollywood to me. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um. So basically now this is what Rob wrote in outside. So quote, the struggle to get out had moved mud and led to maybe an inch or two of water around me. When I put my hand in the drink, it went numb after maybe 30 seconds. It was so so it was like it was cold out. It was apparently it was like 65 degrees, and I imagine the water was colder. An hour passed, the sun is kind of going behind the canyon wall, it's getting colder, the temp kept dropping, and they weren't able to get him out for 13 hours. Wow. Hypothermia. Huge concern. So, you know, medics and emergency emergency services came, all that stuff. They were able to, like, feed him hot meals from this portable stove. So that was huge. They ended up eventually trying to use a helicopter to get him out. So, I know. <laughs> Just, like, hoisted. Wow. So basically, they had it hover above him. And he, like, was, like, holding on to something attached to the helicopter. And then they tried to, like, lift him up. And so this is what he says. Quote, After the third time, and by the third time he means like trying to lift him up the third time, uh, I remember telling them it wasn't working. The fourth time, I ended up slipping up a little bit as the helicopter went up and it pulled me in a weird way. I felt my back go pop, 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 pop. (laughs) So he was like, let's please stop. (laughs) Yes. And... The pilot was heard over the radio saying like, if I try this anymore, I'm going to rip this kid in half. So they ended up getting him out, not with a helicopter, but like rescuers went out on rafts and dug him out with shovels. Um, and that took 45 minutes, but it did eventually work. And the reason it took so long and why it was so difficult, because remember, he's not in that far. Um, right. it's, really, it's really just his legs. Um, but. They had to be really, really careful to, like, hold the quicksand and the mud in a certain way that it didn't, like, flow right back in around him. But, yeah, they got him out, and they flew him to the hospital, and he had completely lost feeling in his legs. And then he he wrote this, quote, It was Thanksgiving, so I called my parents at 5 a.m. Three days later, my legs regained their feeling, and I joined the group for a 10-day backcountry skiing session in the Grand Tetons." Wow. <laughs> Some
2: people are just... <laughs> different from me <laughs> that's exactly yes. what i thought
1: <laughs> so yeah and like this is not the only quicksand story that's out there so my final piece of piece of advice for y'all what to do if you're stuck and according to the e- experts the best way to get out is to do the a little wiggle to kind of wiggle your legs around and th- you know that is antithetical to the movie advice because movie advice exactly. is like,
3: that is the one thing i wouldn't want to do right because that's what the movies have taught me.
1: Exactly. I was surprised as like, well. It's like, don't thrash. Yeah. Wiggle. Right. So <laughs> A it, gentle, it's gentle wiggles. And that makes kind of like space gentle between wiggles. your legs and the quicksand itself. So if water can flow in there, then it like kind of dilutes and loosens the sand. Um, that's like what the experts say. And you have to do it really slowly and like progressively. And it only really works like until you lose feeling in your legs. Yeah. Um, but in theory, the wiggles should work. So, yeah. And, you know, you're not going to really sink past your, your waist or your armpit. So even though the movies say don't wiggle, you got to wiggle a little bit. Um, and that's my quicksand story.
2: <laughs> <laughs> wow. I feel so much more prepared um, for what feels like my inevitable <laughs> encounter with quicksand I know. now. I know. Though we've talked about mm-hmm. it. In- <laughs> I have to admit, I don't
3: think the movies ever made me afraid of quicksand really i think i maybe came into like movie quicksand around the time where i was like okay this is clearly a very goofy silly thing yeah and would never actually happen and i think i maybe just always assumed it was made up for the films
1: i feel like it hit me at the perfect age where i was like oh this is real you know what i mean
2: (laughs) (laughs) i also think like you know I definitely remember adults telling me like, oh yeah, <laughs> and the thing about quicksand is you can't move when you're like people definitely responded to questions about movie quicksand as if they knew way more than they did, which made <laughs> it seem like much more of a credible right. threat. Right.
3: <laughs> Maybe just like our TV budgets were worse in the UK and now just like quicksand looks like really pathetic and everyone was just like that. <laughs> we wouldn't be able to get through that just Maybe. fine.
1: <laughs> yeah, the days of our lives quicksand. Mm <laughs> hmm.
2: all right we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back with one more fact okay we're back and uh it is it's tea time tea
1: time it It is tea time
3: (laughs) Yeah, um I wanna talk about um tea and yeah, British infrastructure, if that's okay with you both. There's <laughs> um is. one of my um my favorite facts about um one of the odd ways that the United Kingdom works. Um I did wanna ask you both, are you big tea drinkers, either of you?
1: Okay, I have the perfect thing to say about this and it's my favorite thing to brag about <laughs> please so in in undergrad in college I, I studied in London for a whole semester um, and I loved it it was the best and mm-hmm. I I did like a little internship at this um, nursing magazine called nursing times shout out nursing times and I did a lot of really cool things at that inter- internship and then everyone was lovely but my biggest claim to fame is that you know I learned to make a really good cup of tea
0: Hell and
1: yes. You know, at like the workplace, or at least where I worked, like people would do a tea round, like where you make tea for everybody, mm. and then you go give it to everybody, and that was a whole thing. And by the end of the internship, one of my coworkers said, "I can't even tell an American made this tea," and that wow, wow, I know you really so, <laughs> assimilated. That's incredible. I did. So I like I mean, tea.
3: Yeah. <laughs> if you spent if you spent am... enough time, yeah. Sorry, go on.
2: Oh yeah, does I like tea a fair bit, and my husband actually does not like coffee, so he's a he's a tea guy. So we have we have a lot of teas.
3: Okay, <laughs> and do you both have electric kettles? Is my question. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay, but I, I know that like that is...
1: people people you know say Americans microwave their water a lot.
3: That is a big thing. Yeah, I, I don't know if you've seen, there's this one TikTok of this like American mum and her kid and they're like, here's how you make British tea. And they start off by microwaving water oh, for like no. like 30 seconds and then just like pouring in a ton of milk and it's, it's the worst video oh. I've ever made. Um, but yeah. Um... <laughs> If, yeah, it, just because you spent time in the UK, you would know that that sort of stereotype of, like, British people drinking an absurd amount of tea is just, like, a, a very, like, true-to-life stereotype. It's so <laughs> true,
1: yeah. And I became, I, like, I I loved it. It's I, It was great.
3: Yeah, it's very much just, like, any time that you show up in, like, a British person's home, it will just be a matter of time before you're offered, like, a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that, like, at least in my experience, like, electric kettles are pr- pretty... Rare, or it seems more uncommon for them to show up, like in uh, North America, mm-hmm. where it's pretty much just like every single household. It would be very surprising to go into a household and not like have them have like an electric kettle. One of the things that I discovered when I moved from the United Kingdom to Canada is I got an electric kettle, and I was like, oh, why is my water taking so long to boil? Um, because, and I think, I don't know this for sure, because I hadn't actually been able to find anything on this, so I'm just sort of going by what, um, my understanding is, but because the mains voltage is different in, mm-hmm. like, North America and in the UK, like, the mains, um, in North America is, like, 120 volts, whereas in the UK it's about twice that. Oh, wow. And so, my understanding is that the kettles in the UK will just take more power, and therefore will be able to heat up water just faster.
1: That does make sense because I remember speaking of my study abroad trip, people who like brought their curling irons and flat irons for their hair and then like plugged them in and then they got like short circuited and broken. Huge in. mistake. <laughs> yeah,
3: that is very much a thing. Yeah, for right. sure. Um, but yeah, so um, one of the sort of like things that as um, there's a certain phenomena in the UK is called TV pickup, which is kind of a combination of the British British people's love for tea, um, for having tea very regularly, for associating any kind of break with let's have a cuppa, mm-hmm. um, along with this sort of like reliance on electric kettles, um, in combination with particular like big TV events, um, and so basically, and this is a this is a thing that is exclusive to the United Kingdom. This doesn't happen mm-hmm. anywhere else in the world. Um, but any time that there is like a big like tv event be that like a, a sports like event or it's particularly prevalent when there's like um, a finale of like a soap opera like Eastenders or something like that um, or reality tv is another big one or if it's like a specific thing like um, like uh, you know a royal wedding or something like sure. that all of these things um, bring a lot of people around their TVs and then the Love moment Island. that yeah, the moment that like <laughs> a um, <laughs> the moment that a commercial break happens or that particular event ends, every single person is like, okay, it's break time now. I can go and have my tea, and right. suddenly millions of people across the country are all turning on their kettles at the same time. <laughs> um, and so this is something that there's actually a specific um, team. At the National Grid, which is the, the name of like the country's like electrical system, um, they're called the National Grid Energy Balancing Team, and so what they wow. do <laughs> is that they track um, when events like this might happen. So that they can um, make sure extra energy is pumped into the grid at these specific moments, so that to compensate basically for all of these Mm -hmm. people making tea at the same time. It's not it's not just tea, obviously. It's like um, other things associated like with it, like um, you know opening your fridge or something like that. All of these sort of like other like electrical things, but it's all happening kind of in sync. Um, The biggest one that ever happened. Was during the 1990 World Cup, after mm. the semi-final, it was England versus West Germany. Um, I don't know how familiar you two are with um, with footy <laughs> with soccer. <laughs> um. uh,
2: yes, my my husband is actually uh, German and mm, okay. uh, a football fan, so I I'm not mm. actually that familiar, yeah. but I I dabble. I stand in the room while it's on.
1: I dabble <laughs> as well, <laughs> lightly. I'm pretty
3: much exactly the same, but it's like, I think being in England for so long, it's just like impossible not to just pick up knowledge. So um, it went to penalties, basically. Mm. So this was like... Um, because it was a semi-final, they couldn't end it in a draw, someone had to win, so they went into extra time and it was still a draw and they went into penalty shootout. So basically it was like the match went on as long as it possibly could. Um, And so there were a lot of people kind of like staying and watching the specific event. Um, And then the moment it ended, there was a 2,800 megawatt demand, which apparently is equivalent to uh 1.5 uh, million kettles give or take oh all, all my going God. off at the, at the same time <laughs> the people were thirsty yes. <laughs> they were <So> gasping <laughs> um, that's wild and i say equivalent to kettles as well because every time i've i did a like research into this anyone from the national grid would like they would say a number and then they would specifically say this is how many kettles that is because that is like their frame of reference basically right um but yeah, there's there's a whole team of people dedicated
1: just to like. I love like, that there's a team. Yeah. Yeah,
3: they will they will track like uh, specific TV events based on like data over the course of like the last five years, so they can like have a comparison and be able to make predictions. They will be in direct touch with like TV networks, so that they will know like the precise moment that like an episode of EastEnders is like supposed to end, so that they can compensate for that. Sometimes they will, um, like, uh, I was watching a video where somebody was going through this process and um, he was like, I'm, I'm in touch with like France so I can get some like surplus power from, from them to compensate right. for this moment as well. And I actually have a, a, yeah, a quote here from somebody um, at the um, National Grid Energy Balancing Team. Um, who said the tv pickup from deal or no deal is gobsmackingly high how sad is that oh
0: <laughs> so my God.
3: I, not only <laughs> are they like forced to watch all of these like shows and pay attention to all of these events but apparently <laughs> they don't even necessarily like doing it which is extra yeah. funny to me
1: that, I agree. That's hilarious. Also,
3: sidebar, the deal or no deal, I should say, in the UK is very different to how it is in, in North America. Um, oh. It's the same general format, but just, like, aesthetically, while the one in, like, um, uh, yeah, in the US is, like, all of these, like, pretty ladies opening all of the boxes. Totally. Um, right. In the UK, it's all just regular, like, members of the public who will eventually go really? on to, like, be a contestant.
1: That's more fun, yeah. I think. Yeah, I, I think totally. so as well.
3: Yeah, um, and I don't think it's very sad to whoever that uh, quote is from, from the, the National Grid. I like yeah. deal or no deal a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> personally. Yeah. The other thing I discovered as I was doing research into this is um, the specific infrastructure that exists to make sure that they can um, provide energy during these surges. Um, and they have basically these like um, reservoirs of water. And they will kind of like slowly over time pump reservoir pump these reservoirs with water, so that they have this big supply of water. And then the moment that they need all of this energy because everyone's standing on the kettles they will open up a valve all of this water will come down and they'll generate a bunch of like um hydroelectricity in that huh. moment and that is how they will compensate for these um <laughs> these huge spikes
1: that's wild i wonder why they may i don't know i don't know why they choose that that maybe that's just like what was easiest to do and i also wonder like the first time they realized <laughs> this was happening like I wonder, like, did the grid go down? You know what I mean? Like, how? Yeah, I I, I don't know.
3: Yeah, I don't have any specific information on when they were when this first started occurring or anything like that. Um, Just that it is just a very regular occurrence now um, in the UK, although it is slightly less like regular now, um, or at least these spikes are less big than they used to be. Sure. And that started first with um, when the UK went from like five terrestrial channels to like digital tv when suddenly there were just like a bunch of other channels to watch and then mm-hmm. again sort of add to that with like streaming and things like that yeah. there are less of these moments that occur now where, where just like a lot of people are all watching like a specific uh, show or event or something like that um and it is worst uh for sporting events that apparently is the bad, the bad one because that's the one where they don't know when it is going to end or when the thing right. is going to happen. <laughs> yeah. At least we when they're to in that. touch with, like, yeah, like it's the finale of Love Island or whatever. They're like they yeah. know to the to the like the dot exactly when that thing is going to end. But um, tennis is apparently a particularly bad one because those matches can just go on oh, for yeah. a very very long time and they just have to sit and wait and just be ready for that moment and just be ready with predict. that
1: giant tank of water <laughs>
3: exactly <laughs> i was really curious though, like how how do you provide that energy all in one go and totally I, like, I guess you just like have a battery with a bunch of energy stored in it but right at the same time a res what is a reservoir of water other than a bunch of energies stored in one place and the moment you open that valve suddenly you get that energy right i guess it's sort of yeah. the same thing
1: yeah yeah that's really cool and-
2: I would love to watch a like split screen of whatever event I'm watching yes. and them <laughs> being ready to <laughs> like, release, release the Kraken. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: incredible, incredible. One. It's true, it's true. It's, it's,
3: it's, I can 100% <laughs> send you the video that I watched, uh, which was from, uh, it was a clip from an episode of a TV show, I want to say it was called, um, like above Britain or something. Mm. Um, And there is a clip of somebody who was like, I don't know where I'm gonna get my energy like from in this moment. Like the BBC told me EastEnders was gonna end by now, um, but it's still (gasps) on the air. And then just like watching this like man, just like have this like intense focus and panic while (gasps) hearing like the ending credits music to EastEnders (laughs) as he's trying to just like scramble to make sure he's gonna like have all his power. And he's just like, where's the energy (laughs) from France? It's just like, do 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 (laughs) do. It's pretty. It's pretty excellent. <laughs> so I should send that to you if you want to link it.
2: Please. Yeah, I definitely want to see that. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I love that so much, and it makes me kind of um. It there's something kind of sad about it no longer being a thing that uh-huh. everybody is. I know. Watching uh these big events happen at the same time, even though like you know, it's not that I think that the UK should have been forced to just stick with the five BBC channels for forever Mm -hmm. and never get digital TV. But we should do more synchronized experiences, I think, are... That's probably why people like
3: Twitch. Hey. There you go. Speaking of- I think hey. it's the reason that it seemed from what I can I can see it's like either like yeah, royal wedding events mm-hmm. or sports events is the big one. Sports events is the one that I think people are still going to be watching watching live and no matter what yeah. the service is, you know, you still going to want to see that.
1: Yeah.
2: In the US, we really just have the Super Bowl. I can't think of anything oh, yeah. else. <laughs> um I guess the ball drop.
3: Yeah, people in the UK are still really uh, into football. And so, yeah, big, big football events are still going to be the the big one for sure.
2: Yeah.
1: It's never going away. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, um, I love what a range of weird stuff we had today. Truly. <laughs> um, such an assortment. Charlie, thank you so much for coming on. It was so great to have you. Thank you
3: so much for having me. Thank you for being a great venue for me to share my sort of nerdy British tea infrastructure facts. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite, favorite facts. I was trying to rack my brain for what to, what to share and I was like, oh, it's yeah, perfect. TV pickup. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely like sure.
2: perfect. <laughs> and um, would you remind our listeners uh, where they can find you? Sure.
3: Um, yeah, the best sort of places on the Internet to find me are either on YouTube um, I'm just youtube.com forward slash Charlie, uh, someone at YouTube was nice enough to give me that redirect a long time ago. Nice. That's amazing. Um, uh, and then I also do uh, a lot of streams on Twitch too. Um, probably more, um, prominent on Twitch these days. Um, and that's twitch.tv forward slash cool. Like, yeah. Awesome.
2: The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Faltman, along with Jess Bodie, who also serves as our audio engineer and editor extraordinaire. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. Our logo is by Katie Belloff. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos.